0: Okay everybody, we are back for episode seventeen, part two, continuing to cover part seventeen of Twin Peaks the Return. This is J.R. Parker. I just want to note for everybody that last night I was reborn in the cleansing fire of watching episode seventeen and eighteen simultaneously. I do not claim to be the person who came up with all the theories that uh, about the show that can be uh, divined from having this experience of watching them in sync i am i am like paul the scales have fallen from my eyes i'm i'm here to proselytize on that version however i'm going to keep my mouth shut as we discuss part 17 about this stuff but when we get to 18 i will provide a running commentary of what's going on in 18 uh, what's going on in 17 as the things are going on in 18 but anyway enough about me uh we've got our uh, gang of four here I-, I am here kyle are you here uh yes i am jr okay great and ken are you here
1: with us i'm here i have a group of norwegians and i think they are ready to close on the ghostwood
0: deal <laughs> and uh and jeff are you with us
2: I'm here, and then right behind me, superimposed, is like another giant black and white version of my own head watching this. So I'm good.
0: Good. Good. Well, that's that's perfectly normal. Uh, So back – In *Medius Race, when we were discussing part 17, the owl ring had been put on Bad Coop where he was uh, transported into the Black Lodge, presumably. And we see the owl ring bounce on the floor of the Black Lodge or at least the Red Room. And then we have Coop asking Sheriff Truman for the key to the Great Northern Room 315. Coop says that Major Briggs had told him that Sheriff Truman would have it. Truman is flabbergasted, a little bit surprised, and hands it over. And I think Ken... And Jeff, you had a few things you wanted to say at this point.
1: Yeah, I'll go first if that's okay. Uh, this, this to me, you know, we have a lot of meta things in 17 and 18, and a few that more that I have to flag yet. But what was interesting to me was how flabbergasted Sheriff Truman was about this whole thing. It really felt like we talk about understanding the silverware here on the podcast, which is like having a mundane sort of objection to something, or like a continuity complaint about something in which we've already suspended our disbelief about all kinds of crazy mysticism and other worlds and such, right? And so here, I think it's really Sheriff Truman doing this that. Sheriff Truman understanding the silverware. He's got an eyeless interdimensional being in his office that was formerly in his jail. He's been through the siege perilous with Andy and Bobby Briggs, and he's just witnessed uh, Fab Fist Freddy winning a video game Dragon Ball Z-type battle with a different interdimensional being of pure evil of some sort, which has transformed into its pitch black super monkey ball form. And he's just watched said being extracted from the court corpse of a doppelganger by mysterious half-existent woodsman on the floor of his own office. And yet somehow after all of that, he's like, wait, you know about that one key that's in my pocket? Like, get it together, Sheriff Truman.
2: <laughs> I will say kudos to Robert Forster for how he played this. <laughs> uh, and just, you know, completely laconic. Uh, most of my comments here, actually, I think we'll wait till we get a little bit further uh, in the scene. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let's move on. Unless uh, Kyle or Jr. has anything to say,
0: no, no. So I mean, what 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 we have here in the in the sheriff's office, Nido seems to calm down, and Coop looks at her deeply, and then something happens, and at this point we see the large black and white or gray scale face of Cooper superimposed over the entire scene, and after this happens, we see Bobby entering the room, saying, "What's going on here?" Uh, Bradley Mitchum says, took the fucking words right out of my mouth. And then Coop talks about Major Briggs. And then Gordon Cole, who's right here on time. And Cole comes in with Albert and Tammy. He says, and, and he says, Coop. And Cooper says, now so there are some things that will change. The past dictates the future. Candy, Mandy, and Sandy enter with snacks. And uh, Candy says, it's a good thing we made so many sandwiches. Coop. He he sends his regards to Harry Truman, and then at this point, Nido seems to freak out again. Then she calms and is led by James and Freddie over to Coop, and she touches his hand. And then it, what's what's interesting here: the, the music swells. Nido's head is replaced by steam. We see black smoke, a black canvas, and then we're taken into the red room where this sort of like black. You know, blob, onyx, viscera, ball-encased th- thing hangs in the middle of – sort of hovers in the middle of the room. We see Diane's face inside of it and then a reverse – almost like a reversal of how Sarah Palmer's face came apart in the bar. Uh, and now we're back at the sheriff's station uh, <clears throat> where's Coop? Coop's face is overlaid on the scene and Diane's head, <clears throat> now with red hair – is on top of Nido's body. And then Coop is he's very happy, and we see the superimposed Coop staring out at the sheriff's state station as well as over the empty and silent red room. <clears throat> now there's this, this look between Coop and Diane, and, and notably the superimposed head disappears. And there's a connection, a recognition. Between Coop and Diane, who now has this this shocking red wig, about sort of verifying that they're that, that they're really there, and then Coop asks her, Diane, if she remembers anything, and there's this great joy on both of their faces, uh, like this has been a great uh, and wonderful reunion after a long time, and they kiss very passionately. You know, I have a lot of thoughts about the significance of this and how it ties into what happens in part eighteen, but I'm gonna put it pinning that for now.
1: Yeah, I have just a couple of short things, but can I ask you to unpin one thing? Can you just tell us what happens in episode 18 at the moment the superimposition begins, the moment we first see the superimposed head?
0: I'm not prepared to discuss that, Ken.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Fine, I'm sure it'll come up uh, in 18. But, you know, the other thing to mention here is just that Diane is dressed like she's cosplaying the Red Room. Like, her hair is the red of the curtains, and her nails are alternately black and white, like the floor of the of the Red Room, which is kind of a neat touch. And also, just the way that they kiss, right? So... Um, you know, they, everyone looks on and, um, and Cooper greets Diane by name and, uh, the big Coop head vanishes and then they kiss. And it seems at the beginning of the kiss, like she's being super tentative, like she's kind of reliving the naked kiss trauma, as I was calling it, with, uh, with bad Coop. And then she can sort of confirm that, you know, he tastes like original Coop or whatever, at which point she like really attacks him with, uh, with gusto, which I thought was a, a nice touch and a nice acting moment by these two, you know, Lynch veterans.
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to I will say I believe that this is a scene of Coop reuniting with Diane after the events that are depicted in part 18. So
2: this is the true end of the story? I think it could be. <clears throat>
0: yeah, I could see that, too. And, and
2: I mean, the, this was just I'm glad we kind of stopped the previous episode. I mean, the previous you know episode of the podcast here, because, yeah, this is where things get strange. Uh, and then it's the moment in the episode and the two part finale, I guess, when this kind of for me ambiguity, complexity really kind of creeped into the picture. Uh and I've gone back and forth. I mean, we're only less than a week out still, but I think I've gone back and forth, you know, seven, eight, nine different interpretations of everything, you know, from here on out, uh, and kind of, you know, retroactively looking back on a lot of the rest of the season from this point. Uh and I, I feel like it my first sort of impression uh was that from here, you know, through the end of 18 Cooper was making some sort of terrible mistake again and doing so in a headlong fashion. And that was sort of my first initial almost visceral emotional response to the finale from this point on. Uh, and then I think as I've watched it again and thought about it and sort of digested it. And I think this is, seems like it's happened with a lot of people. Um, I think he might actually be executing this plan to defeat Judy. That's been in the works and has been orchestrated for many years by, and it's included himself Gordon, Major Briggs, Jeffries, possibly Diane and Laura, uh, and yeah, I, I, I'm, st- I'm still <laughs> trying to digest it. But yeah, this is the part where things get very, very curious. And I think the, the superimposition of his face is really strange. And then, as you mentioned, it disappears when we see that. Floating egg, you know, it seemed it reminded me of sort of amniotic Bob in a sense. Um And uh, but that floating egg going in the red room. And then there's also another moment when it disappears. So maybe we'll move on unless anybody else has Do anyone else have anything to say about this, Kyle
3: yeah yeah and and the interesting thing about when it does disappear and and Ken, I think you noted this as well that when she describes Cooper as the one and only the the face fades so that there literally is only one cooper that's that's visible there, which I thought was a really nice touch I'm like you jeff i I was uh not really sure what to think of this in the moment, um but the more I think about it, the more convinced I am that this is really the key to the home the whole thing because up until now you've had pretty much thirty straight minutes. Of of relatively speaking, linear narrative. I mean, it seems to be adding up, although there's there's a lot of fridge logic that hits you afterward. Um, but then you get this, what I call the Cooper super, with apologies to Taco and Putting on the Ritz, uh, appearing over the screen, and there's this divergence. I mean, bad Coop is gone, but there's still two Coopers. There's the big cooper dream head and then there's the one who's actually interacting uh with other people and and the first lines we hear after this double image appears is bobby's question and bradley's answer which they're of course speaking for the audience and to some extent i think for lynch himself that we're not we're not really meant fully to comprehend what happens from this point forward but major briggs clearly did he foresaw all of this and agent cooper does and so he says gordon's arriving right on time Gordon previously wasn't sure whether the plan was working at all, and he thought Cooper was, was calling late, but Cooper's confident that things are going right on time. And he says, you know, that's what's brought us here today, which I think is effectively the, the end of the narrative of the first 16 and a half episodes. And then he turns to the camera and he says, uh, you know, they're both looking out at us, both Cooper's faces, and he says, now there are some things that will change. The past dictates the future. And in between those two sentences, we see Hawk, who knows things he's not prepared to talk about just like philip jeffries and he he nods along like he understands what what cooper is saying uh and then then like you say we the cooper super fades for a second they look at the clock and it's right there between 252 and 253 which again doesn't make any linear sense because it was 253 when cooper gave the note to uh to uh uh, what's his name mullins um and of course las vegas and twin peaks are both on pacific time so it couldn't possibly be right it doesn't make any linear narrative sense but the cooper close-up returns and, and we have to wonder is it future or is it past and then and this is the one that's that's the key to me the other cooper says to us we live inside a dream, and, and the more I think about it, as as we see these scenes where it's not really clear as they appear in the Great Northern, they're walking across his face. It's not really clear which one is the dream image and which one is the literal image. Um, that I take him at his word. I mean, I, I think essentially any conventional narrative ends at this point, and and at this point we're just we're we're living inside. The dream that Cooper is having, essentially, for the next ninety minutes.
0: Right, and yeah, you know, back to Diane's appearance. What her her red wig for me is very striking because it looks like it. It reminds one of Marjorie Cameron, uh, the wife of Jack Parsons, noted uh, rocket scientist and occultist, uh, who uh, was played the role of. The Scarlet Woman uh, in a production called uh, The Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. And With Kenneth you know, Anger, right? Yeah, Kenneth Anger production. And I, I don't think there's any way to avoid this connection between Marjorie Cameron and Diane, uh, given the fact that we've got Jack Parsons on the wall in the Silver Mustang Casino and we've got, you know, the appearance of Jack Parsons in the Secret History. Yeah, it takes uh, about 50 I mean, pages of the book up. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And and as we, I think, I can't remember if we, we mentioned this in the podcast. A lot of people have made a big deal out of the fact that Mark Frost has, um, you know, that David Lynch never read the Secret History. But we would understand that the Secret History was written after the Twin Twin Peaks: The Return had been written uh, and was being shot by by David Lynch. So it wouldn't make any sense for him to have read it before he shot the series. So anyway, I, I do think that this is a Frost connection. Mark Frost has always been the one who brought elements of the occult into Twin Peaks, whether it was theosophy, okay. uh, <clears throat> the Black Lodge, the White Lodge, uh, you know, the, this, this notion of Jack Parsons going out into the desert to birth the Babylon, the, the mother of all abominations, you know, I, I, I think there's a connection there uh, to – Judy. Judy, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. The mother and I think experiment. it was after
2: that experiment, you know, or like not the experiment, it was more like a, a ritual that they did in the desert that I believe Marjorie Cameron just kind of showed up out of nowhere, literally almost, I think, on Jack Parsons' doorstep, you know, and I think he saw her on some level as like a manifestation of the ritual or like, yeah, so, yeah. He's called her the Scarlet Woman, I believe. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, and Jeff, you, you corrected yourself there. But I, I think that was a, a Freudian slip or what Robert Bly would call a Hermes precision when you called her the experiment, because we, in fact, have a character who's the experiment, who exactly. may, in right. fact, yeah. be the same as Judy and the same as the mother of abominations and the same as mother. So, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of tie ins there. And so I, I don't know that you got it wrong. I think you got it right the first time.
1: Right. So I just want to take stock of where we are with interpretations as we go forward towards episode 18, because it seems like we already have two lenses that have been put out there that are not entirely compatible or maybe completely mutually exclusive, right? Kyle has suggested after a certain point that everything is Cooper's dream. Everything is a dream of some kind anyway. Um, And Jeff has suggested that maybe the shot where the superimposed head goes away is the actual end of of the series that there's a that there's a plan that Cooper puts into place and he succeeds in some way uh and then he returns back to that point and the series ends. Am I, am I summarizing the two of your positions right? Because I, I don't think both of those can be true, right? They they cannot both be true and I believe you have
3: summarized them accurately.
2: Yeah. Okay. And JR, did you feel did you are you more in agreement with me or did you have a, a different interpretation of it?
0: No, I think I'm with you. I think yeah.
3: I'm with you. I'm, I'm I, with
0: the I cage sort of, theory.
2: I am yeah I imagined I mean, even upon a first viewing, I think I sort of felt that this was Cooper from some other place. At first, I thought the White Lodge, uh, just because of the black and white nature of it. And, uh, I thought it was like sort of, I always imagined, like, you know, that first new scene, uh, in the first episode of the season where it's Cooper and the firemen talking about a lot of the stuff we see in episode 18 Richard and Linda, 430, uh, two birds, one stone. I always, from the beginning interpreted that as taking place somewhere after the events of the season, you know? Exactly. Uh, And and then I, and when I first saw this superimposed face observing these, I took it as that being in the same place, you know, either somewhere forward in time or outside of time in a different way. So that's sort of was my initial take on it. And I still mostly agree with that. So, yeah,
0: I just was going to say, there's so much experience between Coop and Diane. That's unexplainable. If that reunion isn't taking place, I think, after the events we see in part 18.
3: Yeah, and there's, there's certainly some logic to that. But let me ask you this, because we did kind of move past uh, one point there where, you know, the lights dim. You know, we got this big Cooper head there and then the lights dim and Cooper calls out Gordon and Gordon calls out Coop and the ominous music swells. And then we we fade that the, the sheriff's office scene kind of fades away and we go to what looks like a more solid looking, you know, superimposed Cooper face. Uh, and then we see. Uh, Gordon and Cooper and Diane walking out of the darkness into what we later see is the is the boiler room of the Great Northern. So, how, how do you interpret that then? If if these other events, Jr. If if you and Jeff are right, and and those these events from this point forward are taking place prior to that reunion in Frank's office is that then the actual ending is that the final point chronologically when when the the sheriff's office gets dark and they say Gordon and Coop and, and what happens then in your estimation?
0: Well, I wouldn't presume to know what happens then. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's a pretty
2: insane leap, you know, and it's like I yeah, it was like this like crazy jump cut, you know, in time space dimensionality, you know, like it for me, I mean at first, I was like, all right. So somehow Cooper, Diane, and Gordon are like in this like metaphysical version of the boiler room of the, the great northern, you know, in the same way that like when Mr. C and later, uh, in this episode, in a few minutes, uh, Cooper and Mike, they're at like the, you know, the, the metaphysical, metaphysical version of the black, the blue diamond motel, you know. So I, right. I, I, yeah, that's, that's about how they got there. It's alighted, and yeah, I'm like Jerry. I don't presume to know. Uh, some important things happen between there and then, and maybe it's just like you know, right? <laughs> some portal opens up. But
3: do we all agree, I- at least, that in that gap, there isn't just you know the lights dim and then the lights come back on, and then Coop and Gordon and Diane leave the sheriff's station and drive over to the Gort- the Great Northern and go down to the boiler
1: room? I and mean, we all agree that doesn't happen. I'm I'm not sure I'm ruling that out. Okay. It, it, <laughs> it's enough. possible this is all a little bit more okay. linear than than we're acting like it is, but I'll 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 have more to say on that later, I think. So Ken, you're now the advocate for a linear
3: narrative in <laughs> well, this story? Is that right? <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I'm a little hesitant to be cast in that role for uh for obvious reasons, but um yeah, I'll I'll, I'll hold off. I, it's 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 not outside the realm of possibility to me that okay. there's that that sequences is more straightforward. Yeah.
2: In the Blu-ray box set later this year there's gonna be four hours of Cooper dying and Gordon getting lost driving around Twin Peaks to get from <laughs> the sheriff's <laughs> station to the Great Northern with right. ominous silence right. between them. Yeah. Okay, stopping so we're in for the... gas stopping for gas at Big Ed's gas farm again and again and again.
3: Yeah. Right. Right. So we're now in we're now in the Great Northern. However we got there, we're in the Great Northern boiler room and and, and Cooper is now using his room key to unlock the, the
0: door. So Right. Right. And, and I, I will note, I'll, I'll go into more detail in, in part 18, but the exact moment that Cooper steps through the doorway in the Great Northern Boiler Room into the Dutchman or whatever is also the exact moment that he crosses the threshold into Carrie's home in part 18. Uh, okay. This, this, that, that synchronization was probably the thing that jumped out at me the most, although there were many, many similar moments. Um, Yeah, so Coop goes through the door in the Great Northern, and uh, if I recall correctly, we get the final um, recitation of the central poem of the series. Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds, fire walk with me.
1: Yeah, I mean, before that, we have the the 25-year-old room 315 key unlocking the boiler room door, uh, which I think is dumb, but uh, Jeff maybe has a, a defense for.
2: Yeah, I, I thought they weren't literally in the boiler room. Uh, I thought that it was like, yeah, some sort of, as I said, sort of metaphysical boiler room. And I like this. I don't know. The key's been in the lodge with Cooper for 25 years, probably attained some sort of magical or supernatural properties as a result. Uh, I sort of saw this boiler room as being like, you know, an in between place, uh, like a perhaps good or non evil version of something like the convenience store, you know, like a trafficking, you know, place between two worlds. Uh, and I thought that Cooper, you know, unlocking an entrance in the metaphysical realm with this key. I don't know. Keys always seem like they have these kind of very, you know, They have that can be these totems and dreams and have this kind of significance. And, you know, remember the, the blue key and the importance of that in Mulholland Drive? I kind of weirdly liked it. So I will defend it. I could see on some level how you would say that this was dumb, Ken, but I, it for me, it worked and just seemed strange enough and suitably, I guess, oneric or suitably dreamlike.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's a that's a strong defense, I think. There's also a shot in the basement where we pan past a whole variety of tanks like um Freon tanks or something that, that bears a uh, an aesthetic resemblance to the room full of bells in I the I thought
2: the white same line. thing, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. My second viewing I thought the same right. thing. Yeah.
0: Which bells that are letting off steam like steam is let out in a boiler room. Yeah, exactly. Um, And there's
1: this moment where, where before the poem, before Coop enters the boiler room, where he uh, looks at um, Diane and Cole and tells them not to follow them. They sort of stare back at him silently. He hugs Diane, shakes Gordon's hand, and uh, and says, uh, turns back, opens the door, turns back, and then tells Diane he'll see her at the curtain call, which felt like the most meta thing of all to me. And as I was watching it the first time, I was still in sort of murder mystery mode. Like, I was thinking, we're going to get the details about um, Laura Palmer. We're going to get the, the diary pages coming back in. Like, I was still waiting for little pieces to be put back in place, probably because see, episode 17 had turned out to be quite plot heavy up until just right. before this point, right? Um, and so I just expected the curtain call to be something like the old Sherlock Holmes turns to the assembled throng and explains to them how this all went down kind of a moment. And, of course, episode 18 ends up being being exactly the opposite of that, right? The, uh, what, whatever we end up uh, saying in terms of our interpretations of it, it's clearly not a plot-driven <laughs> murder mystery resolution sort of an episode. Whatever satisfactions it has, they're not the satisfactions of watching a um, omnipotent sort of detective figure tie up all the loose ends in a murder mystery. So, um, I, I thought that was that was an interesting line, and I, I thought it was interesting the theatrical kind of fourth wall breaking way that kyle mclaughlin delivers it um and uh you know obviously it seems to be a reference to the curtains of the of the red room as well um but uh yeah just it just seemed like uh, a wink to the audience that we're going to be wrapping this all up even if uh that's not how you view episode 18
2: and i was gonna say on my second viewing of these episodes I i believe the next time that cooper and diane see each other is uh, in Glastonbury Globe, Grove, when he comes through the red curtains in episode 18. Right. And so that would be, uh, that that's how I interpreted that the curtain call being uh, right. when Diane would meet him, uh, regardless of where that is in time in this narrative, depending on our interpretation of it. But that's how I saw this curtain call referring to the next time he would see Diane as he stepped through the red curtains at Glastonbury Grove in 18.
0: All right. So I'm, I'm kind of lost here. I don't, I don't. <laughs> uh,
2: so I was just going to say that I have always been. Uh, in, in reference to the poem, the "Fire Walk with Me" poem, I had always heard it as "chance," as you know, C H A N T S, and this was the only time I had ever heard it as "chance," C H A N C E. And yeah, I, but didn't you guys hear it totally different?
3: Well, no, I, I'm with I'm with Jr. on this. I've always been a chance, C H A N C E. And my understanding for many years was that that was the minority view, and that chance had been had been established as the correct answer, but I now understand it's a little bit more gray. I mean, here it really seems to make logical sense that it would be a chance in in CE because we're literally at this intersection, and of course we're about to see Mike lead Cooper through the same – group, uh, same area to the Dutchman's that we saw Bad Coop being led to, and he only passes the jumping man on the stairs and goes out to the motel and all that, so they really do seem to be between two worlds, and it does seem like there is this one chance that we're about to find out, you know, what that chance is, so, and and of course, nobody's chanting out at anyone, Uh, he's just reciting a poem to him face-to-face, so that that seems logically to be C.E. rather than T.S.,
1: Yeah, Yeah, I've always been team CE, uh, like, like you, uh, and like JR, but it did seem to me listening to it like this time he carefully enunciated the NTS. I mean, the the words sound the same is fundamentally the problem, right? But I I heard him and I almost heard like this long S at the end that made me think that's meant to be an S that, uh, that the actor playing Mike here is trying to be very precise in the way he says it as NTS, which is, again, not my preferred, uh, uh, word, but yeah,
2: right. Chance C H A and C had never made sense to me, and but now it it did at this moment, and yeah, and i, I also going to say I just felt that Al Strobel's head coming out of darkness reciting this poem. Yeah, there have been at times I have found Al Strobel's acting as Mike a little bit hammy. It's usually work, but this seemed to be one of those moments when he used his theatricality to great effect, and I thought this yeah. Was, yeah. was was great.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it yeah. is NTS chance, right? Um, Al Strobel doesn't do his Mike. Yeah, but Mike or Philip Gerard is sort of the one who is chanting out between two worlds during the course of The Return. He's the no, one who most enough. often is saying stuff to Dougie or Coop or somebody, you know, you are alive, don't die, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so, you know, point. if we If we're forced to accept the less desirable word in the poem, you know, it does seem to uh, be appropriate coming from that character.
3: Well, and with all the doubling, it literally could be CE in some places and TS in other places. That would be like the 37th oddest doubling in all of Twin Peaks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah.
3: So anyway, I skipped over, and Jeff, I apologize. I kind of skipped right over the jumping man thing like it didn't matter, but I know know you're a big jumping man advocate, so you had to be thrilled with that.
2: Just... I mean, I was just thrilled. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I just love when the jumping man shows up, you know, and he made this weird, like, like sort of sound. I couldn't like make heads or tail of it, but yeah, it was great. Yeah. I was just going to say, it seems in this sequence that Cooper and Mike are retracing, you know, the same uh, path sort of through these trees toward the staircase that the woodsman had been on that uh, Mr. C And the woodsman had done a couple of episodes ago. And it seemed to me like as as far as I could tell the same pathway. And I thought it was just interesting that, uh, you know, Mr. C had to kind of ask for, you know, entrance from this woodsman who had to crank the kind of machine with a record player on it and then, you know, let him, and he had to be accompanied in, in this way. But yeah, I thought that it's almost like there was this sideway in through wherever the great Northern boiler room and right. uh, Cooper and Mike didn't have to like bargain uh, with right. uh, a woodsman to get in there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the shot of them walking through the superimposed trees does give an impression of curtains too, which is yes, really nice. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Well, and and is and, and I may be wrong about this, but it seemed to me that when Bad Coop went to the Dutchmans with the woodsman, that when they came out of the door, they seemed to go directly ahead across the motel courtyard to get to Philip Jeffrey's room. And here it looks like Mike and Cooper turn to the right and go along the wall. So it looks to me like up to that point, it's the same path, but that they take a different route. Now, I don't know if it's like Valva and, you know, it may be approached from many directions. I mean, we are, you know, outside of of normal space here, but it seems like they took a different avenue at that point to actually physically get into what appears to be the same room, although we're typically looking at it from a different angle.
2: Yeah, I think you're right because it's like they, they, you know, they emerge in the same courtyard, uh and right. then but then it looks like they just walked down this dark hallway. And I think that's one of those physically right. impossible things. This hallway shouldn't yes. lead them to the courtyard but through this other entrance. Um yeah, and then, you know, it I uh it, it kind of as a result of that, that was you know, I always I thought after the scene in which Jeffries uh talked to Doppel Cooper that he was just kind of Messing with him, giving him bad uh, instructions and uh, didn't yeah. take him seriously, knew he wasn't the real Cooper. Um, and I, you know, was even more convinced of it after the the conversation that was about to take place. But this kind of, I love this kind of impossible geometry. I think right before right. we started recording, I was comparing JR's new obsession with the simultaneous viewing of 17 and 18 to the shining documentary, Room 237. Right. Uh, but uh, I think one of the best things in that documentary, which, you know, if, if, uh, Listeners of the show haven't seen, they should. Uh, but it, one of the great things about that documentary was when the guy looked really carefully at the plans, you know, for uh, the Overlook Hotel and then the, the way it was shot. And I think one of the things that on a subconscious level resonates with you is the geometry of that hotel in the in the Kubrick film is impossible. You know, there's no way that these rooms can connect. And, uh, and that, you know, even though you're un- unaware of that until, you know. You see the room 237 documentary, uh, and then you kind of realize it, uh, it still resonates with you in this level. And so I like that. I love the impossible geometry of, of these spaces. I liked it a lot. And I think it adds to the kind of sense of irreality, unreality, uh, about them and makes them more convincing. Yeah. And that's one of the things Lovecraft loved too, right? Impossible geometry. Right. Uh, so yeah.
3: Well, you know, of course. I mentioned uh, Valva. I mainly was thinking of the Doctor Who episode, but obviously, it comes from an MC, M.C. Escher painting, which you know does the same thing. You can you can approach the same spot from many impossible avenues. But it's funny to me, Jeff. You say that you're right. Now you're right. Jeffrey seems to recognize Good Coop in a way he. Uh, acted like he wasn't quite as sure about Bad Coop, but here when they walk in, and you know, I criticized Hawk before for his obliviousness to what should have been fairly straightforward for, from Hawk's perspective about the two Coopers. But they come in there, and Cooper doesn't seem to recognize Jeffries at first, understandably because he's a tea kettle now. But he says Philip and. The other two people in the room are both named Philip and and I think that that's a little bit of, of obtuseness on Cooper's part and it also was a missed opportunity for a little bit of comic relief with the introductions of you know Philip 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 um, that that they really could have dropped in there and and I think had a little bit of that unsettling out of place David Lynch humor in a place where it really really doesn't go which is what would make it perfect
0: and so I'm, I'm gonna be contrarian on that Kyle because uh, once he's dropping firewalk with me poems it's safe to assume Philip is off his meds he's Mike
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right uh, so and that's I, why yeah, that's I, why I knew the real way to uh, Jeffrey's room because without chemicals he points he was like it's yeah, exactly. this way right over here exactly okay.
0: exactly all right I stand corrected <laughs> uh, so yeah so we've got uh, Philip with his you know continuously uh, Bad Southern accent, yet it's so charming because we think about David Bowie using it. Um, you know, please be specific. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Very good. That's and, nice. Uh, and you know, and, and Cooper gives him the, the date, February twenty third, nineteen eighty nine, and uh, and <laughs> the date Laura was killed. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 you know, and then <laughs> Philip i'll find it for you <laughs> it's yes. slippery in here it's it's just so bad please continue <laughs>
2: with this jr please
0: no i know it's 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 so bad uh and so so basically he's doing you know black lodge google inside of his bell to to find this date uh and you know jeff you you want you went through this like really specifically so i want to let you talk about it Jeff was uh, this, obedient. This, this he, he,
3: Philip told him to be specific. Jeff was specific. Yeah, so there well, you
2: go. I was, I mean, this was, again, just like a very difficult to untangle scene, but I thought it was very important. And then, you know, he, you know, he says, it's good to see you again, Cooper. Uh, and it seemed to me like a very sincere, like he recognized this was the real Cooper. And then I thought he said, say hello to Garland if you see him. But you guys thought it was say hello to Gordon if you see him. And then he said, he'll remember the unofficial version This is where you'll find Judy. Uh, And then there's this weird pause. And then he says, there may be someone. Did you ask me this? And at first it looked like Mike was nodding. And then it looked like he was shaking his head. Uh, And I was just, I don't know what to make of all this. But I was very interested in the unofficial version. you know. And I think this is where you'll find Judy. I didn't know if that meant the... February 23rd, 1989, the date that uh, Cooper was looking for, or if the unofficial version, which, you know, my sense of what happens in kind of 18 um, and what we see later in 17, there's some change of timelines or alternate dimensions involved. um, And I sort of was wondering if Gordon or Garland, whoever uh, Jeffries is mentioning here, you know who remember the unofficial version? I wondered if you know, is the unofficial version what happened in one of the timelines. You know where Laura died. Right. Uh, was it something else? But that this was just fascinating to me. And uh, I also would like to say that I have come around. As it seems again, several people have since the finale. I think that Jeffries is not the teapot or the tea kettle, but he is the orb outside the sort of white globe, you know, orb uh, outside the tea kettle that steam is blowing on to like sustain because it did look like um, Mike and Cooper were talking to the orb and not to the tea kettle itself. So just going to put that out there.
3: Well, and I was the idiot who thought that that Philip Jeffries was the box in Argentina. So I can't possibly debunk your position on that.
2: I think that might have been the imitating uh, whoever was imitating uh, Jeffries. I'd have to check that again. Mm. We're going to have to like re- – yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to rewatch all 18 hours and get back yeah, to Yeah, Actually, it. I, think,
0: I think that the theory is that the person that was imitating Jeffrey's – there's one theory that that was Judy slash Sarah Palmer mm. because the voice, that weird modulated voice uh, sounds kind of like Sarah Palmer talking from the Black Lodge at the finale of season two. But anyway –
2: But did you, what did you, did you guys make anything, especially of the, he'll he'll remember the unofficial version and that weird pause, and there may be someone. Did you ask me this? There was this, what, did you guys have anything to say about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was sure it was Gordon that he was saying, not Garland. I I like, much like Chance with a C-E, I sort of like the implications of Garland better, but it sounded pretty clearly like Gordon. Um, You know, my, my you go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say, because, yeah, if, if Jeffries mentions Garland here, that's, I think, one of the only times we would have had, I think Kyle said this, there would have been direct connection between the two. Otherwise, Jeffries has always been associated with Gordon and Albert. So, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. And I, my brain just went immediately to the meta fourth wall place, right? That, of course, the person who's going to remember the unofficial version is the director. You know, that, that, that Lynch knows yeah. all of the stuff behind the stuff, right? Right. And that it's a, it's a little bit of a wink the same way that it's a wink when Lynch says Philip Jeffries doesn't exist anymore, at least not in the usual sense or whatever, right? Um, so, uh, what, yeah, what's his actual description of Jeffries? Um, Philip Jeffries who doesn't exist anymore, at least not, not in the any normal sense um, any yeah, normal sense right. that's it not the usual sense any normal sense right so it it seemed like the show sort of um describing itself or or doing sort of a mobius strip thing but um but yeah i i, I don't have a more literal in continuity uh you know uh diegetical <laughs> explanation for it
2: yeah well it says he does say this is where you'll find judy and then he says there may be someone you know so it's almost like there might be a disturbance of some sort in their plan, you know, where he's going to find right. Judy. There may be someone else there, you know, so yeah, that's, that's one way I accounted for it, but I really don't know.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I do sort of want to introduce one more uh, interpretive lens here because I think this is this is the place to do it. Do we all agree that Coop is asking for this date because he wants to go back to it? He is asking to be taken back to February of nineteen eighty nine, given what we see yes. after yes. this? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 So I just I want to introduce the possibility that this is a uh, a mistake, that this is just Cooper screwing up. That he wants to go back in time because he thinks he can change things, because he thinks he can prevent um, Laura from ever getting murdered, because that's the only way this will ever work work out because the past controls the future and because he's now enough of a enlightened bodhisattva that he can uh, mess with the time stream itself. And, you know, I think there is definitely a reading of everything we see after this that just says that is a terrible idea, that reads right. the last shot of this as him being trapped somewhere in agony and Judy and uh, the mother of abominations eventually winning. So, you know, we've got we've got that possibility that he's about to embark on something deeply stupid. We've got the dream possibility that Kyle raised, and we've got the um, possibility that he winds up all the way back at the happy reunion with um yeah. uh diane that that jeff post uh, uh postulated and i think that you know we're we're gonna have those three in some manner of conflict from here on out at least plus more i'm sure
2: yeah. and ken that's that's how i interpreted my first viewing for a several days afterward i think it really, really troubled me and depressed me you know to see that we were going to see another version of you know cooper screwing up and making this sort of you know, terrible mis- mistake and trying to do too much, you know? Yeah. And then I, I still think that's a valid interpretation based on what we oh, see. Absolutely. Sure. I've come around Certainly to something different, but I think, but I, yeah, and it, it, right. exactly. And I, and I, I guess it, it, it really bothered me, you know, and I think I was, was hoping for some sort of positive growth or something. But yeah. And it, I guess also the way that Cooper handles things in the rest of kind of 17, in which he, you know, we'll talk about it soon, but he sort of doesn't really Talk to Laura at all, or give her a choice, or try to explain what he's doing. Yeah. He just sees her. Right. He's like, "We're going home," and he just like takes her. He doesn't explain anything to her. He's not very right. like concerned with her feelings or wants to be like, "Hey, do you want to, you know, alter your timeline and possibly wipe all this, you know, stuff out of, you know?" It it just he he just does it, and he doesn't really look back at her or discuss anything with her. And so that was that. And then you know, versus, uh, and he and he kind of repeats the same thing with a little more uh explanation you know in 18 but yeah that that that's the way i read it you know my first time through and then i've come around to a different interpretation but my first sort of emotional response to it was like oh god cooper screwing up again and that it it hurt me <laughs> so yeah
3: well and it's it's certainly the way that he messes up right i mean it's we we've got this woman that he has affection for to some degree and who he has guilt over being unable to save and it's leading him into making a bad decision. Well, it happened with Caroline. It happened with Audrey. It happened with Annie. So it happening with Laura, who's who's the central figure. I mean, that makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, there, there's no there's no reason that that wouldn't be accurate. And, and you're right, because I mean, Laura is is asking him these questions when he gets there, and he doesn't give her any answers for the first couple or three questions that she asks him. He just stands there with his hand out and doesn't say anything to her. And if he had showed up, you know, as this figure from the future coming back to the past and gone all terminator and said come with me if you want to live well she at that moment given what she was going through and where she was at that point in firewalk with me would have said give me a minute let me think about that because yeah. that particular laura didn't know whether she wanted to live i mean if she'd been offered that choice she might have taken it depending on where she was but she might also have said you know what let's get this over with
1: yeah, and n- not to mention, like, when we're talking about the paternalistic denial of agency for Laura yeah. Palmer here, never mind all the other people's lives that are fundamentally changed. Like, not that it's a good thing fundamentally for Laura to die, but if Laura Palmer doesn't die, right, um, Bobby Briggs never becomes a cop. Bobby Briggs never gets together with Shelley. Bobby Briggs never has uh, poor, tragic Becky as a daughter. I'm not sure right. he would choose that, uh, that change of circumstances. I'm not sure. sure a lot of people in this community that was forever transformed by this tragedy would change you know what happened in the future if they had the option maybe not even sarah palmer honestly as miserable as she ended up like is it really better if she gets to continue to live with you know bob possessed leland around or whatever i mean yeah yeah fair enough you're
0: just you're you're just not as as uh as hard as gordon where it counts ken You've, you've got a weak, a weak-minded affection and nostalgia for the original series. That
1: that wasn't uh, what he was talking about, Jerry. He wasn't talking about his mind. It was it I
0: it. I don't know. I actually don't. I think I, uh, there is obviously the, the a lower baser interpretation of what he was saying. He's just talking uh, about his his abs. I right? think he said. Christabel right? agrees or, right, with yeah, Ken's it, yeah, interpretation. His, his abs. No, no, no. I know. I, I think he's talking about we've. He's got a plan, and it's hard. It's a hard, difficult, agonizing thing to do, uh, but but you know Gordon's pretty cavalier <laughs> ultimately uh, about the consequences.
3: Um, as long as they well, get yeah, Judas, uh, what what's the consequence for Gordon? He's going to be sitting around the Mayfair Hotel drinking Bordeaux uh, with meeting French women, regardless of you know guys have been missing for twenty five years, and he's like, well, I'm not sure they should have called yeah. by now. I they've got Why things aren't yeah. happening
1: quicker with this plan? Yeah. So, are we referring to the Gordon Cole plan, such as it is, as Operation Tumescence from here on out? Is that uh, is that what you're insinuating?
0: <laughs> no, I don't. I, I think it's 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 more of a cage type situation. Um, well, so I mean, we're. I think it's, at this point we can just abandon the recap, right? Because uh, what are we going to do? We recap the 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 first scenes of. Uh, fire walk with me, or, or not the first scenes, but well, can we some, can we, some, some of the pivotal scenes? We haven't
2: finished with Jeffries because we haven't talked about the symbols that he gives. Yeah. Oh, yeah, go, ahead. Some, go ahead, go ahead.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: I mean, I was it, it, uh, Jeffries kind of ends with saying, uh, he says, There may be someone, did you ask me this? Mike says, It looks like no, uh, and then he, these symbols come up, uh, out of the steam. Uh, and first we see the owl cave symbol, you know, on the ring, uh, and then part that changes and it morphs into two diamonds shapes, like on top of each other. And then that morphs into what looks like the number eight. I also read it as being like an infinity symbol. And there was this ball, this little, like I think silver looking ball inside the white infinity symbol slash eight. And then it looked like the eight symbols sort of flipped over And then the ball went back to its original place. And then there was that clicking sound. And Jr., I thought that, um, or I'm not sure who mentioned this, but that clicking sound that we heard in Jeffrey's room reminded me of that same sort of clicking sound. I think you compared it to a prison door slamming that we'd heard in the fireman's palace slash White Lodge. Did you guys think the same thing? Yeah. That's what I I thought. Yeah, I thought that same noise was there. And then, He says, there it is. You can go in now, Cooper, remember. And then I think Mike says electricity and they flicker, you know, kind of out of existence. But I was really interested in this. Um, This was one of my favorite parts of the Jeffrey scene. And one of my favorite parts, the finale was these images that were floating out. And I'll probably say more about this when we get to episode 18. Um, but you know, the unconscious or the subconscious, whatever you want to call it does seem to prefer to communicate, um, in images and visually through images instead of language, uh, and it's suspicious of language. And I've got some more to say about that, about, you know, how nonverbal, uh, the Lynch, most Lynchian episodes, eight and 18 are, you know, and how much, how little dialogue there is in there and how much it relies upon just image and sound to make its points and doesn't rely on language, doesn't rely on the verbal. Um, and this really reminded me of, this is, uh, you know, pretty far afield, but one of my favorite poets is the modernist poet HD. Um, and one of the central events in her life was she was in Corfu an Island in Greece in 1920 and she saw projected on the wall of her hotel in light, these visions these like sort of five or six images that morphed into each other kind of in the same way that this uh image that Jeffries gives uh cooper is and first she saw a soldier or an airman in profile it changed into a goblet or a cup after that it changed to a lamp or sort of a tripod that they would have the same sort of thing that they would have had at the oracle of delphi then into a ladder. Uh, And then into a winged figure that she thought of as being like Nike or Victory. And then I think um, someone, the H.D.'s companion at the time actually saw the latter two of these as well. Uh, And then I think figuring out these images from her subconscious took HD. The rest of her life to untangle and she was psychoanalyzed by Freud in Vienna in the 30s and Freud called this her only dangerous symptom uh, that she had seen these images in light. Uh, But they that's what this really reminded me of. And I think compared to HD's Jeffrey's images are actually pretty easy to figure out. And I definitely saw the idea of infinity and perhaps being trapped there and in infinity being turned in and out and this ball returning to where uh it started, you know, is sort of some idea of, you know, perhaps Coop turning into Jeffries, ironically, at the end of eighteen. I thought Coop might be in the same way that Jeffries was flashing in and out of existence and was unclear about what year it was, you know, we saw him in Fire Walk with me. Perhaps that's where Cooper ends up as well in a more pessimistic uh reading, I guess, uh of the end of 18. So yeah, that's, that's it. I had a lot to say about the Jeffrey sequence, but that I, I didn't want to, to talk about a few of those things.
0: Jeff, that's great. Uh, just re- regarding that uh, clanking sound that uh, Philip Jeffrey's room seemed to be making. Uh, I think I'm, I'm morally obligated to point out that I believe the same sound is in the stage three navigator scene in Dune.
3: Okay. Well, of course.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: you're I contractually think you're right, obligated
2: to
0: do that too. Yeah.
2: Yes.
3: Yes. All right. Three quick things. Number one, uh, Jeff, I think that HD could have saved herself a lot of money on therapy if she just drawn those on some insurance forms and taken them to Bushnell Mullins and he could have deciphered them for her. So that yes, yeah, she wasted I a agree. lot of money on psychiatrists there Two, And I really hadn't thought about this until you were just describing it. But Jeff, you're talking about how when the figure eight spins around and the little, what I'm thinking of as a marble, you know, it, it's, inverted or flipped over the other side and then the combination of gravity and inertia takes it back to where it started and that that's almost a warning for cooper and what he's doing here and and i think it goes to ken's theory about cooper is really messing up here because what he's showing him is here's where things are now we're going to flip them and when we do uh, no, that ball's gonna go right back where it did. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna try and prevent all this pain and sorrow, but at the end of the day, it's gonna end in pain and sorrow because it's always gonna be there. So, I mean, I think that visually, metaphorically goes to, to Ken's point. And then third, and I, again, just looking at what looked to me like a marble, but Ken, the way, I mean, excuse me, Jeff, the way you were describing it there, it almost makes me think of, of, the seed that Cooper was asking Mike about when he woke up uh, to be able to make a new Dougie Tulpa. I mean, that almost looks like the seed for creating a new Tulpa of someone. I don't know who,
1: but someone.
0: Okay. What's next? Uh,
1: Uh, Palmer house. Now we're in the fire walk with me stuff. Yeah. The Palmer. Yeah. That's it.
2: I was going to say though, that when we, we get this sort of, how did you guys read that last, we get Cooper closing his eyes and this kind of close faded on his face, what did you, how did you guys read his expression or how, what did you, how did you, do you guys remember this Because before Cooper's. we go before, yeah, before we go into the fire walk me stuff, we have this Cooper's face and then he right. closes his eyes almost as he's going into like a meditation and then it becomes black and white.
1: Yeah, there's a there's some herky jerky zoom in, right? It they he he and Mike or Philip uh, jiggle back and forth, and the camera jerks in, uh, zooms in in a herky jerky way towards Cooper. And yeah, you're right. He sort of closes his eyes, and then there's a more gentle sort of a zoom onto his face as yeah. we transition to the ceiling fan and the and the. Palmer I read house. it
2: is him actually looking fairly peaceful and understanding what he has to do. You know, and I, I thought of Cooper at the end of, you know, that, that sequence in episode one going, I understand, you know, to the fireman's then cryptic, you know, I guess still cryptic uh, instructions. And he's like, I understand. And I thought he understood what he had to do here. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. But that's great because when we talked about that, I understand thing right around that same area in our podcast, I said, yeah, but is he screwing this up? Yeah, like no, it's hard know. to know, right? Back then, whether he was navigating the the other realm the right way, whether he was doing what Nido wanted him to do, whether he exited the right way. I mean, the the fact that he emerged um, as uh, sort of insensate Dougie Jones suggests to me that maybe he didn't do everything right. That he was trying to pop back up as original recipe Cooper, and there was this long diversion as a result yeah. of something he did badly, you know? Right. So and this could I, be the same yeah. uh, misplaced confidence.
2: No, and I still think it's hard to read. No, the reason I asked about it was it seemed like Cooper looked more baffled or kind of confused in the rest of the sequence. But then at the end here, right before we go into the kind of recycled uh, fire With me footage, and it f- switches to black and white, I saw him as looking like a little more, Sure, confident, and understanding what he had to do, but yeah, I I yeah. agree, Kyle. I agree, Ken, that it's totally <laughs> open to interpretation. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I, I think have, it's clear he's confident, but
1: I, I think Ken makes a good point that that maybe his confidence is misplaced. Yeah, yeah. You guys, I have strong of strong belief that we will finish this in no less than three recording sessions per episode. Uh, three recording sessions for episode seventeen seems like it's going to be just right. Um. Which also means I'm going to drink three of these improved Scotty drinks over the course of the recordings for just episode 17. It's going to be like eight ounces of bourbon between uh, uh, recordings. It'll be great. Well, on the plus side, we don't really have to
3: recap this next sequence very much because we basically are just taking Fire Walk with Me footage and making it black and white and dropping Dale Cooper into it. I mean, we have some some interesting reactions of Laura screaming because she sees Cooper hiding uh, behind a tree, but other than that, it's it's basically just. James and Laura on the night that Laura died, and, you know, she says the things that we heard her say in Fire Walk With Me that we heard James describe in the original series in season one, and he goes to Sparkwood in 21, she jumps off, runs into the woods, and, you know, Leo Johnson is out there waiting with Jacques Renault and Ronette Pulaski, and things are about to get horrible, and then all of a sudden things change for apparently the better. I mean, other than that, it's it's what we've been seeing for 25 years,
1: right? Choc Rineau, Rineau Pulaski, and a Rainier beer. Don't forget the Rainier yes, beer. Yes, I'm exactly. sorry. You're right.
3: I apologize. I didn't want to step yeah. on your beverage corner.
1: <laughs>
2: and this did answer, I mean, for me, one of the most, the you know, minor unanswered questions. But it's this moment in Fire Walk With Me when Laura looks behind James and screams always seemed just, right. I don't know. I attribute it to just her state of... Mind at this point, you know, in the film and in her life. Uh, And I'd always, for whatever reason, I think it's because she's about to mention that Bobby, you know, killed a cop that I thought she had like seen a hallucination or vision of that dead cop or in the woods or something. Um, Cause I think I'd placed it around there, but that was my answer to this. Uh, But yeah, making it um, Cooper. Was interesting, and it also marked yeah. our first Laura scream of the finale. Uh, and then in the dialogue between James, um, and Laura right before this, you know, there I, it took on extra layers of significance, I guess, for me. Right. The fact that she's like, That Laura has disappeared, you know, we've seen several Laura's disappear this season first, the Laura and the Lodge in episode two, and we're about to see another Laura kind of disappear here. So, yeah, watch, I mean, the you know, watching the you're right. We've seen all this before in Firewalk with Me. Uh,
0: right. Yeah. But you could almost you could almost imagine what Laura's saying to James. Her also saying to Cooper. Yeah. True. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. In terms of you, you're looking for the wrong Laura. Those Laura's gone. Um.
3: Well, I, I will tell you, and again if if we had recorded this podcast on Monday morning, I, I would have told you how much I absolutely loved this. I mean, you know, in terms of fan service, I was the fan they were servicing. So I, I mean, I loved it from an emotional standpoint. Um, as time has gone on, intellectually, I've developed more and more problems with it, as I have with Part 17 generally, and I, I think I'm actually probably over where, where Ken is, and, and Ken was
1: there before I was, so I'll let him do it, but um, yeah, this, this is problematic. Yeah, I mean, I was angry for uh, at the Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me stuff for reasons that I think are fairly personal, in that I, I just respond badly to anything that reverses the time stream or changes the continuum of events that has happened all that have happened already in the narrative. So I think if you're going to do narrative art, if you're going to do serialized television, there's a certain good faith you have to keep with your audience. And I think that all a dream tricks at the end of something or uh, going back in time to cause something never to have happened are just bad faith. I mean, we've invested 50 some hours in this thing and, uh, you know, watched it on either side of a 25-year gap, and when I saw that body wrapped in plastic disappear, like flash out of existence, and Pete Martel go fishing and not find a body, I felt like a strong sense of betrayal. Uh, I've learned that there's a a term for the idea that you can't change the past, which is the Novikov self-consistency principle. I I didn't know that was a a thing that had a name, but... I'd also heard
2: it referred to as the grandfather paradox, so I'm not sure. I think that's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like on TV tropes, they just call it, you can't change the past, right? Um, so or I, back just, to I the think future. I just. Right. I just think I sort of fundamentally can only understand, maybe it's a limitation of my imagination or brain power, but I can sort of only understand the time stream in a way that says anybody that goes back in time and attempts to change something will fail because otherwise they would have already changed it. Right. Correct. Um, and yeah. Nineteen eighty nine always happened before two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Exactly. Always. Um, unless you look at it in like a branching universes Chris Claremont sort of way, right? Um, any anything that is uh, explained by the Chris Claremont era of X Men, I'm sort of okay with. Now the <laughs> Bendis era of X Men, where they really, really mangle the branching uh, timelines, I'm not down with. So that that sort of shows you the limitations of my imagination. No. Well, but Kendall, so, then you know, I have to add, I have to add, it's
3: also yeah. explained by Doctor Manhattan in Watchmen. Perfect.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And we'll talk about, I, I, you know, I, what, what, what this means for this narrative, right? Um, obviously, there's a lot more to go with where the where, where Twin Peaks, the return heads. But I just was viscerally very, very upset at the notion that we were going to have a plot device that involved erasing Laura Palmer's death entirely. And when they, you know, confirmed that even more by having her disappear from the banks, like J.R. can vouch. I was, I was very upset <laughs> in the moment.
2: Yeah, I I did see it more Ken as a branching type of thing, or like or a quantum mechanics, you know, whatever type, a quantum physics type thing. Where yeah, this was one timeline which she went away, but there were others. And then I think because of the scene that immediately follows, you know, the kind of uh you know uh, recycling of the footage from both uh, the pilot as well as Fire Walk with Me, we get that scene with um, Sarah Palmer uh, in the the yearbook photo. And so I, as soon as that, I was like, all right, so that's there's something else going on. It's not going to be that easy. It's not going to be that tidy. And I thought, and you know, I think as we discussed about the nonlinearity of time, and I think as people who had read the Secret History closely and compared it to some of the events the original series, in terms of those, there might be multiple timelines at work here. So I think I'd been thinking about that the whole season, and that's how I read this. And then also I was going to say one of I think um, the better Works of criticism about uh, Lynch's recent work is a book by Martha Nocklinson that I can't remember the title of right now. She's written two great books about Lynch, but the second one looks at Lynch's later work, and I would say probably everything from Fire Walk With Me On, and reads it in terms of this sense of quantum physics uh, and this idea that it's not either, or it's kind of both. And, and, you know, something can be both a wave and a particle at the same time and reads a lot of Lynch's work as and relates it to his interest in transcendental meditation, Eastern religion and so forth. Um, so, yeah, so I, I didn't, I didn't see it as unequivocally, you know, like erasing Laura and erasing all these erasing Laura's death and all these other things. I saw it as doing it in one of the possible timelines at work here. So, yeah.
3: So Bob's victim is Schrödinger's cat. Is that what you're telling us? She's both alive and dead, and that's what that means—that she's got two timelines: one where
1: she dies, one where she doesn't. And that's—I that's don't
2: even—I don't even think they're just two. I think there might be
0: a lot.
1: You right. Know, so. Right. Yeah. There's Earth six one six. There's Days of Future Past.
0: There's sorry, right. Sorry, not, to sorry, ahead, po- yeah. not to mention yeah, pocket uh, right. universes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Earth ten. Yeah, I mean, one of the I Nazis the Nazis one. The other thing. Sure. I got it. The other thing though that that I I see here, and I I don't think that. Um, my understanding, such as it is, of what's happening in 17 and 18 does not depend upon this. But I think at the same time, as, you know, so many fans felt so completely serviced to be going back to Firewalk with me, to see Coop in these scenes, to see this sort of like transcendent renewal of the original season – you know, I also see David Lynch's vengeful auteur here saying, oh, you like those first two seasons of Twin Peaks so much? Let me just retcon them out of existence. Right. Yeah. Uh, see how see how much you like it now. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, this is what I'm doing and I don't care what you think. Um, and I don't, I don't think that it's that petty at all. But yeah, they're, they're, that element, the same element that I think uh, of spite that's probably in uh, the finale of season two not so much to the audience, but as to the executives of ABC. Right, uh, right. You know, uh, you know. one wonders if that's going on. Because as, as Ken and I were watching, I was like, oh, my God, he just completely obliterated the first two seasons of Twin yeah. Peaks, at least, out of existence. Uh, and, I,
2: and I think yeah. that that's true, JR. And I think, like, a lot of the kind of, let's say, the cozy nostalgia sense of Twin Peaks fandom uh, that a lot of people have. And even for those of us who like other things of it, it's a big part of it, you know, the fact that, you know, at least two of us were like eating cherry pie, like you know, in preparation for the you know all those those kind of things like that. And there's this kind of cozy small town nostalgia, you know, element of things. Right. But I don't think Lynch shares that at all. And I do agree with you. I think the experience of the show losing control of the show, cancellation of the show, and then the right. um you know the um uh. Uh, critical response of fire walk with me. You know, I think all of that is, was very traumatic for Lynch. So yeah.
1: Sure. I think Lynch actually has the small town nostalgia to a certain extent, but I think that he is very non nostalgic about the narrative parts of his work. I think that he thinks it's all about the dream. It's always about taking dreams and bringing them into reality. And, uh, he has, by the way, some vicious things to say about network executives and Lynch on Lynch, right? And not understanding how they make the decisions that they make, which is, which is great. But, Yeah, I just think to the extent that narrative consistency or continuity or piecing together a murder mystery is something that his fans care about, he's dismissive of that. It's about his vision and his aesthetics. And so anything that isn't in service of that, yeah, he'll toss aside. He'll toss aside plot points, characters, whatever.
2: And I think it's also this sense for him of like a continuous kind of ongoing, you know, narrative uh, that never really has to end. So. Where erasing uh, previous narratives, I could see how that could fit into that, though. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And no, he's, he's always remember plot is so bourgeois, right? Yeah. Uh, and and, and Lynch, Jeff, Lynch certainly agrees with that. Yeah.
0: Jeff, I have to ask. In the background, was that a black dog? And does it walk at night? Um, it is my dog. Is not black. He is really more gold.
2: Uh, so he's he's gone through an alchemical process, uh, but he <laughs> he will walk at night sometimes. Yeah, but not not often on his own.
3: As long as he's not the angriest dog in the world, I think you're in good shape. But Ken, uh, yeah, I, I definitely uh, see where you're coming from there, Ken. That as far as particularly the shots at the network executives, because I mean, this is you know this is the ultimate screw you to those guys. It's like, oh, okay, you you want to find out who killed Laura Palmer? Well, guess what? Nobody killed Laura Palmer. How's that? How, you know, why well, don't can yeah. you let me get back to making my show now? I mean that that ultimately does that. And I, again, I, I I share all of that. I agree with all of those points. I had the the only negative thought I had on Sunday night while I was watching it was, we're now going to have to change the name of this podcast to Gone Fishing. I mean, that, the Wrapped In Podcast no longer makes any narrative sense. But having said all that, when Laura asked Dale Cooper, where are we going? And Dale Cooper says, we're going home. And they start heading through the woods to the place 253 yards due east of Jack Rabbit's Palace to go back to the White Lodge. I was loving it. I was thoroughly enjoying it. And I thought this is as good as things are ever going to get and nothing will ever be bad again. And then we went back to the Palmer House and things kind of changed a little bit.
1: Yeah. Can I point out another nice moment uh, with the insertion of Cooper into this moment from Fire Walk With Me? Also, like, uh, Laura says to James, how about this, James, and gives him the, the big old middle finger. And then she says, uh, you want to take me home now? right? I think you want to take me home now. And yeah. then, of course, Cooper says, we're going home. And right. it it seems like he's inserting himself into this teenage world in a somewhat inappropriate way, right? Like, I always read the line in Fire Walk With Me as a little um, layered, right? Like, you want to get me out of here, you don't want to hang out with me, I'm trying to push you away by flicking you off and calling you names and everything else. Uh, but also, you know, you think all of this is hot, you still want to take me home and bed me, yeah. you know, yeah. etc. And so, I I think those same layers are are kind of in Cooper's comment. I think getting Im- inappropriately attached to women in his cases is a Cooper personality trait, also. And I
0: think that that reflection is meant to be there, you know. So um, another thing that happens, and this is uh, you know when does it when does it go color? We go back to color as I believe uh, Dale says that they're going home to 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 Laura, is that right i think it's, it's that's somewhere right. in yeah. there when she takes right.
3: his hand somewhere in that exchange right right so that because
0: that's, the scenes know, a, a very from the pilot wizard of oz moment
2: yeah the yeah. scenes from the pilot are all in color and i think it's right, right before we go into that scene the black yeah. and white yeah. of the twin peaks thing right. faded into color and then we go into the color scenes from the pilot okay. exactly okay. exactly
0: yeah that's the, it the, the the wood the woods with 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 Coop and Laura go color. Then we go to the Blue Pine Lodge, which is where Josie Packard and Catherine Martell live. Um, and <clears throat> we see uh, the those original scenes from the pilot play out, but without the body of Laura on the shore. Uh, and then we jump uh, from here to the Palmer House, where we see what, what appears to be modern-day Sarah Palmer's living room, with the bottles and ashtrays and liquor bottles, but although we saw lots of ashtrays and it was a little bit m- more cleaned up, but lots of ashtrays and, and, and medicine for, for Mrs. Palmer back in the original series, if I recall correctly, and certainly in Firewalk with me. But uh, anyway, she comes off and she's very distressed. We hear her moaning and, and kind of yelling, screaming before she appears. She comes into the room. She, she grabs. Laura's photo, the iconic uh, homecoming queen picture, uh, and sort of smashes some stuff, uh, off of a counter and then throws it on the ground. Uh, and, and at this point the time starts being a little bit displaced. It's, it's jumping back and forth. She, she grabs a, a vodka bottle and she starts smashing the vodka bottle, uh, against the picture of Laura, which breaks the glass. But again, we see, um, time, uh, back up and, and, and go back and forth, it looks like the, the picture of Laura is impenetrable. Every time she breaks the glass and it looks like she's going to cut a hole in it, uh, time flips backwards and the, and the glass uh, unbreaks and breaks and unbreaks and breaks. But regardless, uh, there's no wear on the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a great scene. Yeah, and this uh, and quite disturbing.
2: And this, yeah, and it, it looked like the the camera work and the whole thing very subtly. The camera is kind of panning left to right in this kind of seasick fashion. And I think this same technique had been used in a couple of these other shots of the Palmer living, Sarah Palmer in the living room. Uh, but this, for me, was prob- the most disturbing scene in this episode, and maybe kind of most horrific thing in the whole series. Uh, you know, Twin Peaks Return for me we started off with that really inhuman wailing, almost animalistic slowed down, It reminded me of, you know, the, the panthers or whatever, you know, that, uh, uh, the wild animals that Sarah was watching on TV in episode one. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I was disturbed by this and I felt the same thing, JR, that it seemed like, you know, she was unable to smash this and it seemed like time was reversing. Uh And I, at this point, you know, had had very sincere suspicions about it, but I believe this is Sarah possessed by Judy uh, in one of her many guises. And I think the fact that this scene takes place, you know, between Cooper leading Laura out of the timeline, he looks like he's reversed things. Then you get this scene. And then in the next scene, we'll see, you know, Laura disappearing. But I saw this as Sarah possessed by Judy being angered at Cooper's plan to reverse engineer things here and to sort of take the the, the good Garmin Bozia uh, that Laura had generated uh, away from her. And that trying to, in some level, I'm not sure how successfully, since it seems like she's unable to smash the picture, um, but on some level, trying to you know, do something about this uh, and stop this from happening. So, yeah, that was – but I thought this scene was terrifying uh, and uh, really important.
1: Yeah. And what does it mean that Sarah Palmer ends up, we think, possessed by an even more powerful entity than her husband? That Leland gets Bob and then because of this family tragedy, she's she is sort of open to possession by Judy or mother
0: or whatever we're calling her? Unless she was uh, there all along, if she was the girl with the frog bug that crawled down her throat, yeah. and mm. I think there's Judy's been with her from the
2: beginning. Yeah, and I think there's the sense throughout the season, especially in eighteen, that the Palmer House itself is a, a portal, you know, to the Black Lodge. You know, it's right. it's it's a it's it's worse than the convenience store. You know, so
0: well, yeah, well, it's it's a battery of Garmin Bozia mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of what's gone on in that house. Yeah, it's not very comforting. Ken to, a- to answer your question. It's incredibly disquieting. Yeah. All right. So we go from this scene to the woods outside of twin peaks where Dale is leading Laura, holding her by the hand. Uh, and, and we are in this, you know, colorful forest scene. Uh, but then uh, as they, it looks like in are proceeding to Jack rabbit's palace that the coop is trying to lead Laura to the white lodge, to the portal of the white lodge that took up Andy Uh, and also Mr. C uh, in the most recent couple of episodes. And so as they approach, Dale keeps looking back. But just as they're almost there, we get to hear uh, that unnatural and disturbing um, clicking sound in the Victorola and also that we associate with the frog bug in uh, part eight. Uh, And when he looks back, Laura is gone. His hand is holding nothing, uh, and a few seconds later, um, we hear uh, Laura's terrible scream uh, after a whooshing sound, and uh, Cooper looks throughout the trees to find her, but there's nothing, and then the, cur- the green trees fade uh, into red curtains and dimness. It looked like it might be the red room, but instead, it's the roadhouse where Julie Cruz is uh, singing a song that I believe is from the firewalk with me soundtrack.
2: No, it's actually, it's the world spins, which I think is from her first record floating through the floating into the night. And it's um, the last, this, this song was played at the end of uh, I think it's episode 14, lonely souls, the last episode uh, in season two that Lynch directed until the finale. And it plays at the roadhouse, right after the giant appears, tells Cooper it's happening again, and after we'd seen Maddie been killed and we got confirmation right. that Leela yeah, and Bob right, are the same. Yeah. Right. And so and there's it's for me it's one of, you know, Lynch's most amazing sequences he ever directed. And you get, you know, Senior Drool Cups there and Bobby's crying. And yeah, it's this real taking us back to this moment of real loss and pain and uh, in um uh, season two. So yeah. I would like to say well I'll, just before we get to Ken, um about the sounds in Uh, this sequence, um, we'd had, I guess, Cooper, No, I guess, um, uh, the noise we hear when Laura disappears seems to me the same one we hear in the phonograph at the beginning of episode one, uh, when fireman tells the Cooper to listen to sounds it's in our house now. Uh, and then when Laura screams and we hear the whooshing, we'll hear that again, I think, uh, in episode 18, but that seemed to me the sound from episode two when Laura disappeared out of the lodge. So,
1: yeah, And Jeff, had you read the stuff about how pissed Julie Cruz was about how the yes. scene played out?
2: She did not so, like it. She didn't like how truncated her appearance was.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And I guess it took forever for Lynch to convince her to come back. Like, she's apparently super, super hard to reach, and he just didn't know where she was forever. Um, And she wasn't taking calls. And then he finally got in touch with her, and he persuaded her to come back. And I think in the way that, like, when people are actually working with David Lynch, they really, really like him in the moment. She did a bunch of interviews before the episode aired, saying that, like, she really did owe her career to him, and she would never, never regret um, coming back and doing this. She'd be proud of that decision forever, and it was going to be one of the greatest thing she'd ever done and blah 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 and then they aired the episode and they truncated the performance and now she's furious and will tell anybody that listens that she'll never forgive david lynch
2: yeah and she called the whole finale a slap in the face i think
0: yeah
1: yeah she's uh, he's he works with a lot of intense people david lynch a lot of people have very intense feelings about so should we do one last ken's beverage corner for the road
0: god Yes. yes let's do it
1: all right. So, uh, this is our last Roadhouse sequence, obviously, where uh, we have Julie Cruz singing. Uh, so, I just wanted to talk about a cocktail that uh, the four of us have been talking about all season long. This is uh, courtesy of the Access Guide, uh, which JR sent to me uh, in a uh, an iPhone photo at the beginning of the season. This is a description of the little Scotty. The access guide says, John Hanford, Twin Peaks first mayor, was a man of high spirits who moderated his formidable sobriety with intermittent celebration. On one such occasion... July 4th, 1891, in what is now The Roadhouse, he created our very own cocktail, The Little Scotty. Two parts bourbon, one part rye with a dash of drambuie and a twist of lime, Little Scotties still disappear in great numbers every weekend. Scotty's, as we like to call them, are a, little, are a local legend, strained over cracked ice in a short glass and traditionally accompanied by cheese and crackers. They have been featured in Spirits magazine, discussed on The Jerry Allen Show, and have even found their way into the pages of Jared Back's bestseller, Backstop. It's hard to resist a well-made Scotty, but let us suggest moderation for the uninitiated. This is a sly dog with a big bite. So uh, I think this is delightful. There are a lot of uh, unofficial sort of Twin Peaks cocktails out there. There are a lot of people who have made drinks called Laura Palmers. A lot of them tend to be variations on the Arnold Palmer. uh, And I joked a lot about uh, making a bunch of these and trying them out during one of these recording sessions, but they are almost invariably bad, bad, bad drinks. Unfortunately, so is this little Scotty for the most part. I mean, it it suffers from not really being a cocktail, right? It's just whiskey, basically. Two parts bourbon, one part rye, and just a dash of Drambui and a twist of lime. You're just dressing up whiskey on the rocks, which is sort of an odd thing to do. And it actually makes the um, the that combination of those two whiskeys plus a little bit of sweetener sort of makes it less palatable than drinking just the whiskey on the rocks. I tried making up a batch of these just to serve up as little sort of shots in between episode seventeen and eighteen for the finale, and uh, it failed fairly miserably. So uh, I've no, been... They, they
0: were they were really uh, just since I yeah. was there, I, I'll comment that they were uh, well prepared with you know expert skill. Uh, they were terrible shots. Yeah, uh, they were. It, it was it was drinkable on the rocks. I mean, like you could drink it on the rocks, like you know any other high octane boozy drink. I think, but it wasn't particularly pleasurable. Uh, I highly endorse the corn and oil. On the other hand, uh, <laughs> right for, for your Garmin Bozia cocktail needs, I think kale, uh, or, or um, kale. Wow, so that's a uh, Kyle and Ken. Their their uh, y- your tulpa is what kale, kale, kale. So that's right This explains. So, so kale. Ken, yeah, Ken hit the nail on the head with the, with the corn and oil in terms of Twin Peaks cocktails. So anyway, I, I, I'll just. Throw that in. Sorry sorry to interrupt Ken's beverage corner.
1: No, that's fine. Um, and and you're right, it was basically undrinkable the way that I prepared them. Um, and so yeah, then I tried a little tweak on it. And I've been tweaking it since, um, you know, fundamentally, it should be a rusty nail, not a uh, whiskey on the rocks with a couple dashes of other things. That's that's the wrong direction to go. The right direction to go is to just make it a rusty nail. A rusty nail, of course, is just scotch and drambouille. And because drambouille is a Scottish, you know, heather and honey flavored liqueur that's made fundamentally from scotch, it complements scotch nicely. It's it's super simple, right? So, um, but drambouille, booey and American whiskey a little trickier, but you can make it work. And so I finally got this in a a set of proportions that work. And the way I'm drinking it right now is uh, an ounce and a half of bourbon. I used uh, Evan Williams uh, bottled in bond, uh, because I know Evan Williams has been a a source of great consternation on this podcast. But I got the bottled in bond, white label, white lodge, white label, 100 proof Evan Williams. Um, So an ounce and a half of that three quarters of an ounce of uh, Rittenhouse 100 rye, and two thirds of an ounce of drambuy. So you preserve the two to one bourbon to rye proportions and you have a sizable splash, like a good size splash of drambuie in there as your sweetener. And then, you know, it makes sense to have a twist of lime over it to just pull back a little on the sweetness. So it's, a, it's an American Northwest variant on a rusty nail. I suppose it would be fun to make with like Westland whiskey or something made in the Pacific Northwest as well. But if you're going to do it to the original bourbon to rye specifications, you just have to up the sweetener Up the Drambuie enough so that you've got basically a rusty nail. So that's my Ken endorsed uh, Little Scotty improved, improved Little Scotty cocktail. Ounce and a half of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce rye, two thirds of an ounce uh, Drambuie, strained over one big rock, twist of lime. Uh, This has been one final installment of Ken's Beverage Corner.
2: That was great, Ken. And I just wanted to say that I refuse to believe that's the final Ken's Beverage Corner and that you somehow need to... Get something out of the only beverage that I think appears in episode eighteen, which is uh diner coffee in Texas. Something related to Odessa or Texas or Right. Diner coffee that apparently can't even interest Cooper slash Richard. Well, so, Judy's
0: yeah, yeah. Judy's ju- Diner
2: yeah, Coffee. Yeah. Ju- right. <laughs> Judy's Diner Coffee. Yeah. Just uh work, work with that. I'd love to hear one well, I tell final. You what I
1: will I- I'll think about it, but it won't necessarily be the final one, even if I do it in episode 18, because the timeline just loops back around and gets us right. to here. So right. this is going to be the final one in the chronology, no matter what. And your superimpose well,
2: head is viewing all of this right now while drinking <laughs> a and little yeah, Scott.
1: And, and it's in yeah. season
3: four, we're going to go back and we'll find out Ken's beverage corner never happened.
2: It's totally. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Lynch. I think I have to go, you guys.
0: Uh, we'll we'll see you uh 30 minutes ago okay when you pop back into the into the podcast yeah. Yeah. um and uh y- yeah it's okay jeff is it we all agree <laughs> we all agree we, we all agree that that your man char charlie is the dreamer right i yes. think so yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> yes okay. <All> right, okay. <laughs> jeff's man charlie is the dreamer. Okay. okay bye you guys all right we'll get to episode 18 bye all right so i'm going to turn the floor over to you kyle uh, right, with right. your sort of summa- summa- s- summation thoughts on on part seventeen. All right, then I In will. In particular, will- your theories about NIDO
3: yes uh because we've talked about Judy and in particular the idea that Sarah may be Judy I in fact don't believe that's the case because I believe nido is Judy and this ties back into my belief as I've expressed it that we're to interpret Cooper's line about living inside the dream literally and we've seen some things that uh from previous dreams of Cooper's like Mike for instance reciting the firewalk with me poem so there there's some indications of that there's a lot of dream logic at work uh, in part 17 you know we've got some symmetry to it as well, that halfway through part 16, he woke up, halfway through part 17, he goes back to sleep. Shortly before that happens, in fact, we see uh, Chad springing into action because the repetitious drunk has awakened briefly and then gone back to sleep, which doesn't make any logical narrative sense. There's no reason he should have to wait for that, but that idea of someone waking up briefly then going back to sleep kind of Keys us into what's about to happen uh, with Cooper, and and of course we see this superimposed Cooper head appear to indicate his reentry into Dreamland, and it appears as soon as Cooper looks at Nido. Now again, we see this explained away narratively by the idea that Nido is Diane, but uh, like the rest of of what follows, it makes linear sense only superficially, um, and of course. It doesn't withstand a lot of scrutiny. Last week, for instance, I think we debunked the idea that Diane had said, uh, I'm in the sheriff's station. It came across more as, I'm the sheriff's station. So I, I don't know that we need to take, I'm in the sheriff's station, literally. She reacts nervously to Doppel Cooper arriving, which distinguishes her from everyone else that the fireman has sent there. Cooper is perfectly calm, knows what to do with bad Coop. Andy uh, is perfectly calm whenever Chad draws down on him. Freddy gets bloodied, but he's there to fulfill his destiny, and he sees it through. So Nido's the only supposed person put there by the White Lodge who's getting upset. And, of course, as Jeff pointed out, uh, the coordinates that Diane Tulpa texted to Mr. C after receiving his text um, g- lead him to the place where the fireman uh, is able to deposit him at the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. So if, if the Diane Tulpa is having a moment of clarity, why is she doing something that's supposedly going to put the real Diane at danger? None of that makes any sense. So I, I don't buy the idea of Nido being Diane. So she has to be someone else, and who she really is has to explain why and how she's able to fool Cooper into thinking she's Diane and by far the most sensible explanation that this important, unidentified Asian female character— is Jau Dei, which is an ancient name that the Western tongue ultimately bastardized into Judy, just as a similar Eastern consonantal shift might well have changed Jau Day into Nido, uh, we can come to the conclusion that Nido is in fact Judy, and she's being troubled, of course, by the idea that uh, she's going to lose the opportunity to off Cooper and collect his Garmin Bogia. And so Cooper sees Nido, this giant disembodied slow-talking dream head, appears, just like when Dale last saw Nido, that giant disembodied slow-talking dream head of his Judy-pursuing compatriot Major Briggs, appeared and said, Blue Rose, which is not really something he would say if he was telling Cooper that Nido was the real Diane. Blue Rose, of course, indicates that she is, in fact, not what she seemed to be. Uh, and so Cooper makes physical contact with Nido in this scene. Time displacements begin. Freezes at from between 2.52 and 2.53 on the clock. Well, when our Dale Cooper made contact with Nido in the, uh, the, what we've called the space box scene, that's when the time displacement straightened out and we see her look at her watch. And sure enough, it's just changing over from 252 to 253. So there's a lot of connections here. And when we ask, OK, what does Nido do uh, to, to put him into this state? Well, again, what did she do to him in part three? We, we came up with we talked about this a little bit earlier. It came up. Uh, she calls Cooper to change course and take a different panel out of the space box back into the real world. And Mike, who clearly has been on Coop's side this whole time, um, he, he made it very clear don't die. You were tricked. Wake up. So who tricked Coop by putting him to sleep so he could be killed by the villains in Part 3? Well, that was Nido Judy, that's who. And it's exactly what she did here. It only looks different to us because from Part 3 to Part 15, we saw Dougie Coop's dream state from the outside looking in. This time, we've joined Dale inside the dream. But it allows us to see that Judy has learned from her previous mistakes. You know, it was that name Gordon Cole in part 15 that led him back to consciousness. So this time she lets him keep his own identity. She has Gordon be there at the beginning of the dream. She lets Dale be the one to tell him, don't follow me where I'm going, so that Gordon can't be the one inadvertently to wake him up again. And as we've talked about before, this idea of women that he has affection for and guilt over. Carolyn Earl, Audrey Horn, Annie Blackburn, that's what leads him into mistakes. So here, she inserts herself into the dream, disguised as Diane. She sends him on this futile, unending quest to rescue Laura Palmer. And these are the two iconic, abstract female avatars in Dale Cooper's life. It's the one we never saw in the original series, and it's the one that he never met uh, on this earth. And the violent crimes that are committed against them continue to haunt him. And so those are the albatrosses that she puts around Dale Cooper's neck That are the anchors that drag him permanently down into the dream. So by masquerading as Diane, Judy's able to remain a presence within the dream. She can watch him. She can hide in plain sight as a constant reminder of his need to continue into perpetuity his quixotic subconscious crusade. And besides, it's Twin Peaks, so naturally there have to be two of them, right? And then finally, a dream's the perfect trap for ensnaring Dale Cooper. He trusts his intuition, oftentimes to the detriment of reason, but he's oblivious to his own ignorance. You know, he can explain the mechanics of acetylcholine neurons firing high voltage impulses into the forebrain. But he doesn't understand the content because he thinks that, as he put it, no one knows why we choose these particular pictures. And so Judy shrewdly used his trusting wonder against him by selecting the images that serve her sinister purposes. Judy is the water, the dream is the well, and Dale drinks full and descends into this world that is dark within. So I think Nido tricked Coop. Into the waking dream of Dougie 2 to stop him from saving the day earlier. And she repeats exactly the same trick, only much more effectively by putting him back to sleep to prevent him from completing Major Briggs's plan now. And Nido's motivation for doing so is clear. Cooper's, Gordon's, and Briggs's most significant mission was to find Judy and capture her. Nido has the ultimate incentive
1: for wanting to prevent that because Nido is herself Judy. Wow. Um, I like two separate things about that the most. Um, One is the way in which you paint this picture of her creating hell for Cooper by giving him what he really wants the most – right, by, by yeah. solving the problem of these two vanished women in his life. It's like, um, you know, everyone gets everything he wants. I wanted a mission, and for my sins, they gave me one, right? Or uh, the most recent, uh, somewhat derided, but actually pretty good season of Agents of Shield, where they put everybody into this virtual reality network place, and the AI at the center of it um, turns everybody's life into a nightmare by taking away their biggest regret in life, right? Everybody has one thing they regret the most, and if you take that away, their life ends up somehow even worse right right? Um, so I like I like that I like the parallels between that and what happens in uh, uh, the world of Twin Peaks if you take away Laura Palmer's murder and I um, and I really like Uh, The way that your theory seems to explain better what happens when the lights go down in the sheriff's station, because there's a moment of panic between Coop and uh, Cole, where they're separated from each other, and one yells Coop and the other yells Gordon, right? Um, And then they're sort of together and headed into the boiler room. So in a linear sort of way, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if the contact with Nido is the beginning of the trick... Right, I could see how that sequence makes a little more sense in continuity, so I'm not saying I'm all the way on board, Kyle, but I like a lot of the elements of that. I think well, thank you, I appreciate it.
0: No, I think it's really thoughtful, Kyle, and uh, it hangs together in a compelling way. What do you think, though, was the plan of Briggs and Cole and Cooper? to get Judy?
3: I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know what that is. Uh, much like you uh, in, in your theory of, and again, yours holds together pretty well too, uh, of of going, of, you know, they've gone through this experience of part 12 and circled back around in part 17 and we're seeing the aftermath of that and I ask you what happens next and you know, I'll what happens next. Well, I don't know what happens next either. I don't know what the plan was. I know that she thwarted, or I believe that she thwarted it by putting him into the dream state so that they couldn't carry out whatever this plan was. I think there are a lot of questions that are going to remain unanswered because David Lynch doesn't know the answers and, and if Mark Frost knows them, he's not telling. Yeah, Right. I, I hear you. No, I understand. I I'm not uh, I'm certainly not arguing with you there.
0: Yeah, I can the only thing I can say to all of that is that the synchronization between parts 17 and 18 uh if if those are coincidences, you know, I will eat my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wait, didn't Herzog make a bet like that and then have to pay it off? Didn't he actually have to eat a shoe at one point?
0: I I think there was like some European journalist who said he'd eat like a shoe or like a right paper <laughs> or something. I don't remember. Yeah, I anyway, think it was a shoe. Yeah, I don't think it was Herzog though. Um. Anyway, all right. Well, look, this has been great. I think we can put a bow on yeah. part seventeen yeah. and yeah. proceed to record. Over the next five months, our analysis of part eighteen, uh, uh, which which should be great, uh, you know. Right now, we're we're looking at uh, we're coming in at under three hours for all of seventeen, so that's, that's a great. success. That's good, and it's a try. And, and I and I think, given that only about four things happen in part eighteen, most of which involve driving. Uh, we we should be able to to get through that a little bit quicker, yeah. except for the fact that I'm going to be constantly noting what happened in part 17 as these things are happening in part 18,
1: and weaving but, together unified theories and you know uh, t- pausing to compare four or five different critical approaches and lenses to
0: that. That's right. That's right. Other um, than that,
1: it'll be easy, right?
0: But anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Ken, and thank you, Kyle, and thank you, Jeff. Even though you're not here. Uh we'll, 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 this has been a joy it continues to be a joy we'll get these out as fast as we can but I'm going to say good night and goodbye and uh we will see you at the curtain call